Lord, this morning, first of all, we want to say thank you for this beautiful, um, so much more than a picture. I want to say picture, but it's so much more than that. A beautiful opportunity to witness uh, appeals to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So much more than ceremony. God, we are thankful that we've had the chance to enjoy together these beautiful appeals. I've enjoyed nearly as much, Lord, um, hearing from men who are shepherding their families well. Frail, feeble, um, fragile men, just like me, just like every other man in this church, who is doing their very best to seek after you and to walk in you and walk with you and to guide their families in faith. Lord, I'm reminded, too, as I'm thankful for those families that are being shepherded by men that love you, I'm burdened for those families that are doing the very best they can without that. For moms that are shepherding. Lord, I pray for those moms. pray for a genuine connection for those moms to the people of God so that we can stand in the gap in some ways and come alongside and be teammates to those moms that are doing the very best they can to shepherd their children in the faith. God, too, I'm thankful for... um, thankful that we are a church that holds a high view of that, that you have cultivated that in us, and that you developed and grown families to walk in faith between Sundays. We saw the fruit of it this morning. God, also this morning, I want to pray for another pastor and his wife and his family and the church family in a nearby community. I want to pray for Pepper Purrier and for Deborah, First Baptist Church, Mount Vernon, Um, Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity to sort of bump into him and to get to know him and to hear about what you're doing through the ministry in FBC, uh, Mount Vernon. Lord, I'm thankful for the chance to lift up Pepper this morning and his wife, Deborah. And first of all, I want to pray, Lord, that you are fueling him with faith as a husband and father and um, that he's walking in worship at home first and I pray that that's spilling over into his ministry and that that's even fueling his ministry Lord I pray for FBC Mount Vernon I pray that they are walking with you and enjoying you I pray that you are using Pepper and others to equip the saints for the work of service in Mount Vernon Lord I pray that this people that we're praying for this morning will be a salty bright aromatic people and that you'll use them to advance the kingdom for your name's sake and for your glory. Lord, I'm thankful for this treasure we're about to enjoy together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Beginning the last Sunday of 2015, we began to take a look at what appears to be a central theme in the New Testament. 
I shared at the beginning of the morning that I feel like it's a pearl and a great treasure because it's something that I've never really examined closely. So we began a series of sermons on union with Christ starting the last Sunday in 2015, moving into the new year. We first met the idea of union with Christ, at least corporately, together, preaching through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where we found that Paul got so creative as to make up three new words. He made up three new words that represented what happens to us by faith, that we are made alive together with Christ, that we are raised with Christ, and that we are seated with Christ. It was our first really opportunity to consider this union with Christ thing, that what happens to Christ happens to us by faith because of our union with Him. I won't go into great detail about the Sundays since then, but I would like to sort of summarize a couple of things at least. I feel like for those of us that are, for those of you that are here for the first time to hear maybe a first Union with Christ sermon, I want you to have a good context. We found in the next Sunday, in the next couple of Sundays after that, that by our union with Christ, that his sinlessness was counted as ours. His sinlessness is counted as ours. It's as if we actually resisted Satan in the wilderness. Think about that for a minute. Just let that hit you. Let that sink in for a minute. It's as if his sinlessness in the wilderness and over, the, over his lifetime was counted and reckoned as ours. And the flip side of that is our sinfulness was counted as his. He was punished as if he'd actually committed our sins. God did a divine switcheroo is the name that we gave it. It's a very theological name. It's a good one. A divine switcheroo, placing his left hand on the righteous son and the right hand of blessing on a bunch of undeserving prodigals like you and me. That's the gospel that we preach week after week. It may take a different shape or different form or be a different delivery, delivery method from a different passage, but that is the central gospel that we love and hold dear. That he thought of Christ's sinlessness being ours and our sinfulness being his. We found in the Sunday after that that in Colossians, we did sort of an aerial view of Colossians chapters 2 and 3 and found that union with Christ means that we, in response, are to seek the things above. In response to our union with him and receiving his benefits through that union, are to seek the things above. We are to set our minds on God things. We are to put to death earthly wickedness, and we're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in response to our union with Christ, we are to also bear with one another and forgive each other as we've been forgiven. We're to put on love, and we're to let the Word of God dwell in us. And we're to do these things not because it's the Christian thing to do, We're not to do these things because uh, we just feel like we ought to out of duty. We do these things in response to union with Christ and receiving the benefits that he earned. It's more about who we are and who we've been reckoned and less about more 
less about what we do and more about who we are. Today we're going to consider what it means to be in union with Christ together. So you can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We're going to have another aerial view of a significant, sizable passage. Okay, But thankfully, being an aerial view, we're not going to get too bogged down in the weeds. 1 Corinthians is where we'll begin. Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. The Corinthian church, I suspect, would have been the talk of the early church. See, what happened when these letters were written, like to the churches in Corinth or to the churches in Thessalonica or Galatia or Philippi, that these letters would first go to the addressee, but then those letters, after they were read, would then be copied and circulated among the churches of the Roman Empire. And I've thought about what that must have been like to be in the Corinthian church and to know that what was written to you, especially in 1 Corinthians, was going to be distributed among the Roman Empire. You must have been thinking to themselves, dear God, please don't let them see our dirty laundry because it's vast in this letter. And it's apparently vast and significant in the Corinthian church. I bet they would have been pretty embarrassed. And I imagine that the other churches in the Roman Empire would have blushed and said, oh my, I cannot believe what is going on in that church. They were, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, a soup sandwich in every respect. Yet here's the shocking introduction to this letter that has so much craziness in it. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. (laughs) I want that pastor's heart right there. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As messed up as this church was, and we're just going to be really honest, you're going to see some dirty laundry here in these next few minutes. As messed up as they were, Paul believed that faith united them to Christ. He uses union language right here in the beginning of this letter. I thank my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. He uses union language from the outset and is saying, I'm thankful that you are united to Christ by faith. And he even goes so far as to say that the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. This crazy letter starts out by saying, I'm thankful for you, and the gospel was confirmed in you because you're united to Christ. As messed up as they were by their union with Christ, he says, he even goes further to say, you will be counted guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For any of you that are messed up along with me, we can find some comfort in that before we consider the Corinthian church. Reckoned guiltless by our union with him. This is a remarkable truth. 
This is the shocking good news for every single one of us. A truly remarkable truth, considering what unfolds in the rest of this letter. So we're going to consider some samples. We're going to stay bird's eye, but we're going to swoop down and take a good look. We're going to kind of nap of the earth, take a little peek, and then we're going to come back up. And then we'll come back down and take another little look. And what I want you to look for in these next few minutes is I want you to look for a theme of the problems that we see in the Corinthian church. I want you to look for a theme. If you don't have your Bible open, you need to have it open. If you're a visitor and you just don't typically do that, um, I, just please indulge me. Grab a Bible underneath the seat back, please. And even if you feel like, man, I don't like to do things that people ask me to do, please just change, do that. Just do something different this morning. I want you to see that we're not cooking things up. This is coming right from God's Word because there may be a message for you this morning. So, starting in chapter 1, verse 10, the next verse. I want you to pay attention for a theme. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Okay, be watching for a theme. Look over at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul is speaking about his time there when he planted the church in Corinth. Here in chapter 3, he's referring back to that time when he showed up and preached the gospel to them. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, brothers, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In some ways, he's saying, when I first came to you and I first preached the gospel to you, that's what you were. You were babies in the gospel. You were babies in Christ. You were that's not a derogatory term. He's saying, you were new believers, so I spoke to you in a way that you needed to hear. He goes on to say, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Anybody that wants to consider what discipling should look like, let's start with milk. It's a great place to start. He's saying, when I first came and preached the gospel to you, that's what I did. I brought you milk. And even now, though, you're not ready, for you are still in the flesh. Excuse me, I, I missed a passage. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Some interesting things develop here in this passage. They're acting like infants in Christ. It was okay to be an infant in Christ when you're actually an infant in Christ, but at this point he's expecting more of them, and the way that's showing up is in jealousy and strife. He says they're acting in a human way, and they're acting like they're still in the flesh. Just think about babies for a moment. We've had three of them. We have three kids, and none of them are babies anymore, but I'm at least familiar with what an infant is like. And I, you know, I've, I've thought about this. Is he's likening them to infants in the beginning where it's justifiable. They're new believers, just come to faith. Of course, they're infants. But now at this point, they should be more, but yet they're still acting like infants. I'm thinking about infants for a little bit and just wondering, is there any infant that has a real view of how they fit into the family? Could an infant ever be called considerate? Think about that for a minute. 
Could an infant ever be considered selfless? Now, this little child here is just the most selfless infant I've ever seen in my life. Could, this, could any infant, infant ever be considered thoughtful or helpful or mindful of others? Now, the reason we're laughing is because we know better. I don't know of any infant that would ever say to his mother or father, oh no, father or mother, somehow in baby language, please serve yourself dinner first. I can wait. <laughs> please serve my siblings first because I would like to go last because I have a view of how I fit into this family dynamic. We can all say about infants that they are little individuals with massive egos, massive needs. And it's just about all meeting, all about meeting their needs. Okay, let's continue looking for a theme. Turn over to chapter 5. We're looking for a theme in the Corinthian church. Chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 and 2. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Okay, so we can add to the list of what's going on in the church. We've got selfishness. We've got strife. We've got division. We've got quarreling. We can add also unaddressed, unrepentant sexual immorality in the church. And just ask yourself the question as you think about this. Is there anything more selfish than sexual immorality? I don't know of anything more selfish. It's all about self-gratification. No matter what it costs anybody. I don't know if there's anything more selfish and individual than sexual immorality. Now, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is as you read the headings there, lawsuits with believers or against believers. Starting in verse 6, you can kind of see what's going on here. Brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul says this in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between brothers? You see what's going on in this church so far. We can add to it lawsuits between one another. Disputes and apparently an absence of someone who can even sort it out. Are you seeing a theme yet? Let's keep looking. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is almost entirely dedicated to marriage stuff. And given the airtime that marriage gets in this letter and in this chapter, some might suppose that they were having marital problems. Now, we don't know that clearly, but the airtime that's given here suggests that we might, too, be able to add to the list lots of marital issues and marital conflict. Now, let's look at chapter 8, verse 12. What's going on in chapter 12 is he's dealing with the problem of them using their freedoms and their liberties, whatever it costs anyone else. And he says in chapter 8, verse 12, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, when you do that, you sin against Christ, causing others to stumble as you exercise your freedoms selfishly, individualistically, is about as selfish and divided as you could possibly be. It's going to lead to division, and it's fueled by selfishness. 
Chapter 9 is a whole other section I'm not going to really read, but I'll tell you that section is dedicated to Paul dealing with giving up his rights, rights to an income in the ministry. He and Barnabas are not being paid by the Corinthian church because they're a selfish, tight bunch. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 deals with the Lord's Supper. We've read chapter 11 a number of times over the years as we've had the Lord's Supper together. But look at verse 18, what's going on in the Corinthian church. And again, look for a theme. Here's where it's going to come very clear to you if it hasn't yet. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You think it's the Lord's Supper, you're acting like it's the Lord's Supper, you're distributing it like the Lord's Supper, but it's not even the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. One goes hungry, another gets drunk, each one goes ahead with his own meal. If you haven't spotted the theme yet, in the the problem behind the church in Corinth and the theme of this letter of what he's dealing with, let me help you with it. It is division, it's individualism, and it is selfishness like a bunch of big babies. That's the problem. Division, individualism. And selfishness. As I've read this, as I've been flying above 1 Corinthians and looking down at this and considering what in the world is going on in this church. And over the years I've considered what in the world is going on in this church. And now as I'm looking at it through the lens of union with Christ, here's the question I'm asking. I'm, I'm wondering, which is the chicken and which is the egg? I'm wondering, is all this sin what's dividing them? Or is all the sin a result of them moving so selfishly, individualistically, and divided? I'm going to ask that question again because I want you to ponder it. You'll find an answer to, to that question over the course of the time that we spend together. I wonder, is all this sin dividing them? Or is this sin the result of them moving so individual, so selfishly, and so divided? Now, he deals with the theme over the course of the book, but he deals with his answer thematically as well. Turn back to chapter 3. We're only going to look at a couple of passages here, and they're, they're a little bit longer, but he beautifully develops his answer to a sinful, divided church. Look what his answers are in chapter 3, verse 16. Now, I want you to pay attention here. You're really going to have to. It's not complicated. I just want you to really get this. This is the, I'm going to set you up for the rest of the morning if you get these appeals. And you're going to be delighted at what, what, you, what you glean from this. Do you not know, Paul writes to this church, this divided sinful church. Do you not know that you, now in my Bible, which is in the ESV, I have a little teeny little one right there. If you have an ESV, you might have a teeny little one right there. And that little one right right there next to you points down to a little note at the bottom of the page. And the little note at the bottom of the page, for me, if you have the same thing, says, the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. So I'm going to read it like it might have been written to to the church in Greenville. Okay? 
Let's, let's look. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? Let's read the next verse because it's the same thing's true. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. If you're not from the south, just replace all those with you people. Do you people not know that you people are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you people? Now, this is going to be the theme of what he deals with for a divided, sinful church. He says, you people, plural, are God's temple, singular. Don't miss that. You people, made up of a bunch of individuals, plural, are God's temple, singular. And God's temple, singular, is holy. And you people, plural, are that temple, singular. Okay, look at chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14, here he's dealing with idolatry. And he's going to remind them of something that's really going to be a nice setup for chapter 11, dealing with the Lord's Supper. Beginning in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. Are we not fellowshipping in the blood of Christ? That bread that we break, is it not fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The bread here he's emphasizing is just one singular meal. And it's the fellowship in Christ's body, singular. We who are many, he says, the plural, partake of one bread, singular. We all, plural, partake of the one bread, singular. Now... Turn to chapter 12. We're getting close. You're going to be so equipped to really get this in these next couple minutes. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. You can read the heading there at the beginning of chapter 12 and see that he's talking about spiritual gifts, but he's talking about, oh, so much more. Beginning in verse 4. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, to the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now let's just consider, well, look at verse 12 and 13 also. For as the body is one and has many members, and the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now let's capture this. Let's grab this real quick. First of all, he says there's varieties of gifts, plural, but the same spirit, singular, in verse 4. 
In verse 5, there's varieties of service, plural, but the same Lord, singular, in verse 5. In verse 6, there's varieties of activities, plural, but the same God, singular. In verse 7, to each is given a spiritual gift, plurals implied, for the common good, singular. Verse 11, all these gifts, plural, are empowered by one and the same spirit, singular. It just continues in verse 12. A body has many parts, plural, but is one body, singular. Verse 13, we're plural, baptized into one body, singular. And we're plural, all made to drink of one spirit, singular. Man, if we weren't flying way above 1 Corinthians, we would miss all of this potentially. You see, the theme for a sinful, divided, individualistic, selfish church is this emphasis on oneness between them. There are many of you, but you're one. He does it over and over and over again. Let's just just develop the rest of this little passage here, beginning in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Listen to what he says next. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What's developed in this passage, just those last verses 14 through 27, he says, you people, plural, are the body of Christ, singular. You are individually members of it, plural, but you are part of a singular body. Paul's appeal to a divided and sinful church is union with Christ, not just vertically, but union with Christ horizontally. That's a lot of work to get there, wasn't it? But it's so important that you get there. Where we're going to go in these next couple minutes, I want you to see, just first of all, just share a couple of brief passages with you. I don't even need you to turn there. Just listen. It's not just a Corinthian message. He's not just sending this message to a sinful, divided church. It is a New Testament message. It's Paul's theme. It's hard to find a book where he doesn't deal with this reality of union between one another as part of the good news along with union with God through Christ. 
Galatians 3.28, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ, with Christ, with one another. There's not even Jew and Greek anymore. Who's Jewish? Who's Greek? You're just his. Man, let that hit you. It's all over the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to steal my own thunder because that's where we're going here in a couple weeks. Ephesians chapter 2. It's all about union between Jew and Gentile. The most unlikely of people to be united. He says, this is what the good news does. It unites us to him and it unites us to the most unlikely of people. The Hatfields and McCoys. A Jew and a Greek. A man and a woman even. Can you believe it? A husband and a wife even. Romans 12.5 says this. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And I'm going to insert the word consequently, individually, members of one another. I'm inserting the word consequently based on what's being said over here in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read it again. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Man, why the big deal? What's the big deal? Why are we working so hard at flying above 1 Corinthians to get this? What's Paul's point to a divided church in Corinth? And what's Paul's theme across his letters? First of all, it is wildly important that you get that you are, by faith, united to Christ, receiving his benefits that he earned. That is wildly important that you get that. I mean, so, like, uber important. But here's the rest of the good news. That's not all of it. That's the first part of the good news. It is equally important and emphasized, especially that you're consequently united to each other in Christ. It's as much a part of the good news as you are made right with your creator, that you're made right with one another. That's what what he's talking about, the people that are made right together. He's talking about the church. The answer for a divided and worldly church was a strong message of union with one another. You're a bunch of individuals, yes, but you're one temple. You're many people, yes, but you partake of one bread. You're many parts with many gifts and services and activities. But there's just one spirit. There's one Lord. There's one God. And you're part of one body. Do you hear his emphasis? His emphasis for this church is union with Christ and each other. It is part of the good news. And the second part really is nearly, and I'm going to say nearly, as wonderful as the first. It's as much part of the good news as the good news of us reconcile with our Creator. That Jew and Gentile, of all people, can be one. That man and woman can be one? Man, do you view that as the good news? Our context doesn't. Greenville and the surrounding area doesn't. And some of you might not. Why is this so important? Years ago, when we first planted this church... There weren't many people here. That's part of a new church, as you start with not quite nothing, but it was just a handful of people. 
And Scott and I knew that if we were to be the church in Greenville, we needed to connect to Greenville. And we felt like early on that we should spend part, part of our time weekly going door to door in this community. So we had a map on our hallway back there, and it was behind the uh, children's area over there in, the, in, uh, in this back wall. We had a map of Greenville, and we highlighted every street that we visited. And our goal was to visit every home south of I-30 within the city limits area. We didn't go out Old Mill, way out in the country. We, God cares about country folk. We just, didn't, we just didn't have enough in us, you know. So we visited door to door, and granted, it was during the day, so um, we, didn't co- we didn't connect with a lot of people, a lot of people who might be off working. But we did have a lot of conversations with people. You would expect. That's a lot of homes and a lot of doors and a lot of conversations. And what we found almost, um, it wasn't almost alarming, it was plainly alarming and getting us acquainted with our context is there were many people in our community that can fondly recall some sort of experience with God, something they might call a religious experience and may feel like they are in good standing with their creator, the vertical part, with absolutely no interest in the horizontal part whatsoever. In fact, an absolute void of even an understanding of the horizontal part of the good news. And I don't know if it's a result of being hyper-revivaled or under-discipled, but the fruit is hanging from the tree. And I can't even figure out what the tree is, but I can sure see the fruit is not right. The fruit doesn't reconcile with what our Bibles say about what the good news of salvation is. We live in a community that believes that salvation is a transaction with God, like purchasing a vertical voucher to be used in case of death or emergency between now and then. Just being really honest. Do you know your community? Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the people you work with? That say, man, me and Jesus, we're pretty good, but... I've really got no use for that church thing. Many, many, many people in our community believe I'm saved, but I don't need the church. I've got my voucher. Leave me alone. Many people in our community say, I'll take the vertical part of that good news, but I'll pass on the horizontal because people are stinky. People are difficult. People are unpredictable. People just don't meet my standards. Name the list. It's myriad. It's legion. I have no interest in the horizontal part of that good news. In fact, I wouldn't even call it good news. So the result of scores of people who can recall with fondness a day or an event of faith activity, but they can then just as quickly maybe even quicker, recall why they have distaste or disinterest with the church. My hope today in preparation for this sermon was that you will not believe Satan's lie that you can love Jesus and yet not love his people. That is a lie from Satan. I mean, it is. And it's rampant. It is Uh, epidemic in our community the thought that you can love Jesus 
and not be a loving part of his people? Should you decide to miss God's people as irrelevant or dismiss God's people as irrelevant and even unnecessary? I hope and pray that as a result of your being here today, that you'll at least know that you're walking in stark disobedience and in ignorance to his word and his design. And I say that in love to you. It may be the last and the only time you hear it because this may be your last Sunday at a church. It may be your last Sunday at this church. That's okay. I don't want that. I don't want that. But I don't want you to leave duped with the rest of Greenville thinking that it's okay to love Jesus and not be a loving part, walking part, an engaging, meaningful part of his people. It's as much a part of the good news as union with Christ is union with one another. I was going to go into the supper at this point, but I have a passage I thought I would share. One that I am going to steal a little little bit of my own thunder from Ephesians. So if you would turn over to Ephesians, just briefly. Ephesians chapter 5. I have a little bit of a feeling. I prayed that God would give me some sense at this point in the sermon if I needed to share this passage or if I needed to just go right into the supper. And I'm feeling like I need to share this passage. Ephesians chapter 5 is a go-to passage to understand marriage. It really is. Wonderful instruction given there for marriage. Starting in verse 22, he talks to wives. In verse 25, he talks to husbands. But the place where I want you to consider is down in verse 30. Beginning with, excuse me, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's likely... Nobody in this room that will dispute that. Even people that have a very low view of church would likely not dispute that marriage, if they profess faith in Christ, that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. Okay? But look at the next verse. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, Paul's been talking about something that's very familiar to all of us, marriage. We've either been in one or we've seen one or we've witnessed one growing up. Marriage is very familiar to us and we can embrace the notion of a a man and woman being united as one flesh. But what he says in this next verse totally gives some context to what we've been considering this morning. This mystery of a man and a woman and their union is profound, and you think I've been talking about marriage all along, but i am actually been talking about Christ and the church. He doesn't say I've been talking about Christ and Ben, or Christ and Brad, or Christ and Scott, Christ and Tracy. He's not married to you. I want you to hear me say that. It may be the last Sunday you're here. Are you, two years from now, may fall prey to the lie that you can go it alone? But you hear these words, he's not married to you. He's married to the church. We're the bride. We're his bride. We together are his body. We together are his temple. That's as much the good news as the first part, that we're in union with him. I'd like for us to distribute the elements at this point, and I'm going to continue to teach from 
John chapter 17. And I'm actually going to read John chapter 17. If I can get our deacons to start distributing these elements. And I know that you have to pay attention to stuff that's being passed in front of you, and especially if you have little ones, you want to make sure they don't spill some stuff and things like that. That's cool. Pay attention, but listen at the same time, or pay attention to that. But do your best to listen to this as I share this passage. John, beginning in chapter 13 through the end of chapter 17, is all taking place in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper where he's having the Lord's Supper with his disciples. It's a big passage of Scripture that all takes place in this one setting, starting with him washing their feet. We considered that last week. Okay, John chapter 17 has become a dear treasure to us as a church. It's the longest longest prayer in our Bible by Jesus that's recorded in our Bible. And it takes place at the Supper. So it seems just especially fitting that we read this prayer while we're having one supper. And listen to what he prays for in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may, that they may have my, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, at this point in his prayer, he's been praying for his disciples. And now he starts praying for you. A big big old fat, weird, pregnant pause. Just let it hit you. 
on the night that he's crucified, or the night that he's arrested, he prays for his disciples, and now he prays this for you. I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In this context of a shared meal of one bread and one cup with their one Lord, He prays for oneness and union among them. You think it's important? He prays for oneness and union among them. Consider this. Hear this. When you endure with one another, even though we're stinky, when you persist with one another. When you, to use Colossians language, bear with one another. When you gather with each other, even when you'd really just rather be alone. Anybody else? Anybody else ever feel that way? I love being alone. I ain't gonna lie. Some of y'all like golden retriever types are like, man, I don't ever want to be alone. I love it. Man. When you can think of a thousand reasons not to like, much less love your brother. Okay? Anybody else? When you can think of a thousand reasons not to gather with your brothers and sisters, not to baptize, not to sup, not to sing, not to give, not to embrace, not to cry, not to celebrate, not to weep, not to amen when you hear something strong and potent, yet you do... I don't know if you ever don't have those feelings from time to time. I'm being really honest. But when you even have those feelings, yet you do gather, you are walking in fulfilled prayer. You are fulfilling prayer. You are walking in what he prayed for on the night of his arrest. On the night of the Lord's Supper, you're walking in favor. You're walking in blessing as you participate in God's best In God's good design, he's not trying to fool you with some half version of real happiness. There's real happiness if you go it alone. That's what Satan says from the tree. Take this fruit, go it alone fruit. Maverick, renegade, it's awesome out there. You're going to love it. You don't have to deal with all those stinky people. That's a lie of the garden and Satan is a liar. God's not called you to some sort of half version of what's really happy. Satan says God doesn't really want you to be happy. If you eat from this tree of going it alone, you're really going to get the good stuff. Man, that's a lie of Satan. I hope you've heard that this morning. I hope you've seen that this morning. I hope you've together enjoyed that we are members of one another just as much as we are members of him. And for those of you that have been going it alone, I hope you repent. Or those of you that think you can in the future, you, 
you find some reason why someone's making you mad and you're unwilling to bear with one another in response to union with Christ, I hope these words echo in your ears. There is no salvation apart from the church. I said it. There's no salvation apart from the church. Martin Luther said it. John Calvin said it. Our Protestant fathers, the reason I'm not wearing a funny hat and we're not Catholic, they said it. There's no salvation apart from the church. I hope that if this is in the future, you think you can go it alone, you'll realize you are walking in a lie from Satan. And that today, as we take this supper, this one meal together, broken from this one body, I wish this had to have been broken from one big loaf. That'd be fitting, wouldn't it? But I know it's just little tiny little cut up things of fajitas or something, or tortillas, not fajitas. That'd be good. <laughs> tortillas. It's not a good representation of what we're really walking in, but we'll make believe. Make believe that we're drinking from one cup, too, and it's not these little bitty wee ones, okay? But as we take and we eat this bread together, let's enjoy the one body that we eat of together in this one meal by faith. Take and eat. And let's take and drink of the one cup. Let me pray. God, I pray for what we've considered in these last few minutes that it's something that we will walk in. God, I pray for our community that is so duped. I pray for friends and family members that are living and walking in the lie of thinking that they can and maybe even should go it alone. God, I'm thankful that this morning, that this church on the south side of Greenville had the chance to not only enjoy some wonderful pictures of being baptized into one body, we together had the chance to enjoy one meal together. We had the chance to enjoy one message together. We had the chance to sing true things back to you about you together. That we walked in this sermon. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. God, I pray for those this morning that may not be doing this by practice. That may be trying to go it alone. That you'll bring conviction. That you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will guide them into a people where they can be a meaningful part of a people bearing with one another in response to union with Christ. God, we love you. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song.